Okay, so um, I have my work cut out for me this morning, and um, you have your work cut out for you too. I want you to know I'm about to take about an entire semester of college, okay, ecclesiology, all right, eschatology, sorry, and I'm about to cram it into about 35 minutes, and um, you're about to absorb it all. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to get out your note sheet. I want you to get a pen, uh, pencil, lip liner, whatever you use, and I want you to take notes because I'm just going to be flying through Scripture. I'm going to be giving you references, and I want to encourage you through this week to be going back to these and just reading them and and trying to figure out this uh, for yourself. And also just tell you, there's so, so much that I'm not going to cover this morning. Just no way I can. So you just fill in all the gaps. I mean, you, you let the Bible fill in the, the different gaps. And again, just so much. Get a good commentary, whatever, whatever it takes. The question that I want to start the morning off with is this. Are we living in the last days? Are we truly living in the last days? Is Christ getting ready to come back? And my answer is, it's very possible. Lots of people have tried to predict it. Everyone has failed. I mean, people have tried to use calendars and different things, signs of wonders and, God, you know, this and that. And, and so many people have made fools of themselves trying to predict this. And Jesus said himself in Matthew 24, 36, he says, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the son, but the father only. God, the father is the only one that knows when Christ is going to come back to take his people up. However, it seems like everywhere you turn, there are just signs. There are just signs that are pointing to the last days that, that it seems that, that we're living in right now. And some of you may be going, what, what are some of these signs? Well, I'm going I'm to just list some of them. Not all of them, but some of them that I think are kind of standing out to us. We're going to see, the Bible says we will, we will see an increase of wars and rumors of wars. It says we're going to see extreme materialism and lawlessness. We're going to see earthquakes, floods, famines, plagues, and diseases like the world has, has never seen before. I mean, you think about what's going on with, you know, Ebola, and before that we had AIDS, and I mean, we're going to see that kind of stuff in the last days. We're going to see a rapid increase of knowledge. Say, what does that look like? Well, I mean, the internet has allowed us to get more knowledge than we've ever had before in our lives. We're going to see a widespread, uh, widespread violence. And we see that more and more, growing and growing. We're going to see the rising, uh, rise up of, of false prophets and false teachers. People are going to reject true Bible teaching, and they're going to, they're going to teach out uh, teaching that, that suits their own passions. The Bible says they're going to teach out uh, uh, teaching that will tickle their ears. We're going to see an increase in persecution of Christians. And I, and I would say that we're definitely seeing that. We're going to see an increase in abnormal sexual activity. We're going to be hearing and being threatened by things we've never really experienced before. We're going to see people are going to become lovers of self, of themselves, and lovers of pleasure. The gospel is a good thing. The gospel is going to be proclaimed to every nation. Every nation is going to have an opportunity to hear the gospel. There are also many prophecies concerning other nations. But none of those prophecies are more important than the prophecies concerning the nation of Israel. Uh, Ezekiel 37 talks about, if you read it, talks about dry bones and how Israel in the last days will experience a physical renewal and then they will experience a spiritual renewal. And Ezekiel 37, 39, you go into Amos 9, Isaiah 11, talks about how in the last days God is going to bring the Jewish people back to their homeland. What's their homeland? It's Israel. 
Something happened very important, very significant in, in, in 1948. Israel fought a war for their dependence, and they became a stake, uh, a state. All right? And as a result, Jews from all over the world started moving back to, to Israel. Prior to 1948, only 6% of the Jewish population actually lived in Israel. And today, nearly 50% of the entire Jewish population lives in Israel. 1967, something also very important happened. Israel fought a war with Egypt, and in six days, even though they were outnumbered 80 to 1, Israel defeated Egypt, Syria, and Jordan, and they recaptured Jerusalem. Jerusalem had not been theirs since Rome conquered them in 70 AD. So that's the physical renewal. But there's also been a spiritual renewal that I think is even more noteworthy. Before 1967, there are hardly any records of Messianic Jewish congregations, actually Jewish people who proclaim Jesus to be their Messiah. All right? Since 1967, now there are over 300 congregations in the U.S. and nearly 150 in Jerusalem. There are now estimate, an estimated 500,000 Jewish believers. There are more Jewish believers alive today than there has been in the past 1,700 years combined. Now, some of you may be going, so what? Well, listen, in Romans chapter 11, the apostle Paul tells us that because the Jews initially rejected Jesus to be their Messiah, salvation would then be offered to the Gentiles. Who are the Gentiles? Look around. Lots of Gentiles in this room this morning, all right? However, once the fullness of the Gentiles has occurred, the Gentile people get a chance, all of us, to hear the gospel, all right? Then Israel would begin to turn to Jesus. Zechariah 12.10 spoke of this thousands of years ago. For hundreds of years, Bible scholars have understood that when you see Jewish people begin to accept Jesus as their Messiah, then you will know that Jesus is coming back. So the question again is, are we living in the last days? Here's what Jesus said. Luke 21.28. Uh, Luke now when these things begin to take place, straighten up. Everybody sit up straight. All right. Raise your head because your redemption is drawing near. In other words, get yourself ready. Now, it certainly seems like things are lining up just as the Bible predicted it would. But again, Jesus says, no one knows the day. No one's going to know the hour. Many people have tried to predict it and they have failed. No one truly knows. But here's what we do know, and we can be confident of this. He's most definitely coming back. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 says, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Now, some of you are going, what in the world are you talking about here? What's Paul talking about? He's describing an event called the rapture. What exactly is the rapture? Well, the word rapture doesn't appear anywhere in the Bible, but the word itself actually means to be caught up or to be carried away. And those are the words that we see in 1 Thessalonians 4. Paul describes this day when every person that has received God's gift of salvation, they've accepted it, they will be literally taken off the earth and then transported, carried off, caught up, and taken up into, into heaven. Those who have already died will be taken first. That means graves 
are going to start opening them up. And the remains of dead bodies are going to be taken up to heaven to be reunited with their soul. Now, some of you may be wondering, what about people who have been cremated or, or their bodies are not intact? Listen, that's not going to be any problem for the God who created us from the dust of the earth. He has more than enough ability to pull it all together. Those of us that are still alive, we're going to go up next. And here's how Jesus describes this event in Matthew chapter 24. Then two, man will, two men will be in a field. One will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one will be left. Now, I want you to think about what that day is going to be like for people who are truly followers of Jesus Christ. What, I mean, what an amazing reunion day. I have thought about that day. I can't tell you how many times I'm going to get a chance to see my dad again. I've got four grandparents. I'm expecting to see all four of them in heaven. I think of friends who have gone on before. I think of Andrew Prey, who was our worship pastor for two and a half years. I can't wait to see that guy again and give him, give him a big hug. Now, there's an obvious question that I think also needs to be answered. What about everyone who is left behind? Well, you need to go see the movie. No, I'm just kidding, all right? I've actually seen the movie. You can find out what happens if you're on an airplane, all right? It's, it's, going to be very, it's going to be a very sobering, difficult moment to realize that the Bible was right the whole time. Those who are left behind are going to go through a period of time called the tribulation. Now, what in the world is a tribulation? Well, there's a lot of spiritual debate about this particular event. There's not a lot of debate in the Christian world on, wh on whether or not it's going to happen, but there is a lot of discussion about the order in which it will happen. And here's my encouragement to you. I want everybody to look at me for a moment. My encouragement to you is don't get hung up on the order. I have a lot of friends, okay, who, who believe that Christians will face half of the tribulation. Those are called mid-tribbers. I have, I have a few friends, just a couple, who believe that, that we're going to face all of the tribulation. Those are called post-tribbers. And I have a lot of friends, a lot of friends, and I'm in this camp, okay, that believe that Christians will not face any of the tribulation, okay? We're called pre-tribbers. Now, there's a lot of verses that we point to. One in particular is Revelation 3, verse 10. This is addressed to the church at Philadelphia, Right? But I believe it applies to the whole church. It says, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the final hour. What is that? I'll keep you from the tribulation that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Now, the only way to keep us from enduring the hour of trial, the tribulation, is to actually eliminate us from being here. And that's where the rapture comes in. Now, again, there are all, there's just other views as how the tribulation is going to play out. And I think it's important for you to know what you believe about this. But it is not an issue that should divide us. It's not an issue that causes, should cause us to break fellowship. What should cause us to come together is the fact that it's actually going to happen. Now, some of you may be asking, well, okay, Brian, what if you're wrong about your view? Well, if I find myself in the tribulation, I will immediately become a mid-tribber, all right? If I find myself getting through halfway in, in the tribu tribulation, I will immediately become a post-tribber, okay? It's just not, I'm not going to get hung up on that. Now, here's, here's how I believe it's going to shake down from a pre-trib point of view, all right? Those who are saved will be taken to heaven in an instant. The Bible says in a twinkling of an eye. Those who have been raptured will stand before Christ and we will be rewarded for what we have done on this earth. It's called the Bema Seat 
judgment. All right? It's found in 2 Corinthians 5, 9, Romans 14, 10, and then 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 12 and 15. And it described that those verses describe the purpose of the judgment, which is basically it's going to be Christ is going to go over how we invested our lives here on this earth. He's going to judge each thing that we have done, our works for him, whether they are acceptable or whether they're worthless. If it's acceptable, you're going to be rewarded for those things. It's not, but if it's not, it's going to be thrown out. The Bible says that's actually going to be lost if it's thrown into fire. The reward will be lost. Now, I grew up believing... I heard this taught that all of your sins are going to be put on a screen, like a big, big screen in front of you, and you're going to stand there and watch all of your sins played out before you. I don't believe that's going to happen. We're going to be judged on what we have done for Christ, on our, on our works for him. All my sins were already judged. They were placed on Jesus on a cross. He paid for all of them. Okay? But listen, so, how, so does how you live your life here on earth determine your rewards in heaven? Absolutely. It might not mean a lot to you right now, but trust me, it's going to be a big deal, big deal to you when you're standing in front of Christ. Matter of fact, it's going to be huge. A lot of scholars believe that how you live your life here on this earth is actually going to determine your position in, in heaven. In other words, not everyone's going to have the same benefits or the same status. Well, that's a little bit of a glimpse of what's going to be going on in heaven right, right after the rapture. But what's going on down here on earth during this time is, I think, equally as important and notable. A seven-year tribulation period will begin right at the moment of the, right after the rapture. First John describes a leader that will arise up to take power. He'll be called the Antichrist. Revelations refers to him, uh, the Antichrist, as the beast. The Antichrist will deny that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and he will speak tremendous blasphemy against God the Father. Now listen to this. The Holy Spirit's presence will be completely gone from this earth during this, during this time. Now you just think about that for a moment. You think about the work that the Holy Spirit does on this earth right now, how he is holding things back, how he's, he's convicting people, drawing people to Christ, convicting people of sin, probably holding things back that we're not even aware of. And yet his presence will be completely gone at this moment. A little side note, over the years people have tried to predict who the Antichrist is. I remember when I was in uh, elementary school, middle school, back in the 70s, a lot of people thought that Henry Kissinger, who was the Secretary of State, was the Antichrist. Anybody remember that? He's not. George W. Bush, then people thought it was him, okay? A lot of people think Barack Obama's the Antichrist. Lately, I've heard that the new Pope is the Antichrist. You know what? It's all craziness. The Antichrist will reveal himself. You'll know when he comes on the scene. But this Antichrist will have economic power and political power. And he will also have amazing religious savvy. He will have an enormous following of people who, who have been deceived by his actions. And for the first three and a half years, the Antichrist, he will rise up and he will protect Israel so that they can rebuild the temple. Then the Antichrist will turn on Israel. The Bible calls it the abomination of desolation. Nobody knows exactly what that's going to look like. And he will set up his kingdom in the temple for the next three and a half years. Altogether, it's a seven-year period. Now, I realize I'm not going too deep into this. But if you go into the book of Daniel, the book of Revelations, it goes deep into this. Other passages throughout the Bible describe what this time of tribulation will be like. The first three and a half years, there's going to be peace. But it's going to be a false peace. However, the next three and a half years will be hell on earth. Anything that we have ever faced on this earth 
right now is going to feel like a piece of cake. This, this is going to be a whole nother level of hard and evil. All right? During the last three and a half years of the tribulation. Revelations chapter 3, verse 3 and then 14 tells us that the Antichrist will be assassinated and then he will rise from the dead and the whole world will be astonished. Now I want you to think about when the book of Revelations first came out and people are reading this and they're going, how in the world is the whole world going to see all of this? I mean, how, how is everybody all over the place going to see this? Well, now we have TV. We have satellite. We have the internet. All of this has been made possible just over the last several years. After this, Revelations 13, 16, and 17 tells us that people will no longer, in the second part of the tribulation, they will no longer be able to buy or sell or even work unless they have the numbers 666 on their forehead or on their wrist. We don't know if that's a, a tattoo. We don't know if it's a microchip, all right? But that is re- re- referred to in the Bible as the mark of the beast, and it identifies you as a worshiper of the Antichrist. Now, some of you may be wondering, can someone, can, can someone who is left behind during this time still be saved? Well, there are people who are going to be killed during the tribulation because they, they choose to follow Jesus Christ. There are going to be many, many, many who are going to follow the Antichrist, and then Revelations chapter 12, verse 14, and Zechariah in the Old Testament, 13:9, identifies a group of people that are going to be saved and that are going to actually endure the tribulation. The Bible also describes another group of people, 144,000 Jewish people that will be saved and will be evangelizing the earth during this time. So there's hope. There's hope for people who miss the rapture. But trust me, It's going to be hell on earth for these people. This is going to be no adventure that anyone is ever going to want to be on. At the end of the seven-year period, five authors in the Bible, David, Isaiah, Joel, Zechariah, and John, all speak of a war that's going to take place in Israel. It will be a war like the world has never seen. The Bible calls it the Battle of Armageddon. Armies from all over the world are going to be pulled into this one place in Israel. Many, many people think it's the Valley of Megiddo. I have been there before. I have stood on a mountain. I have looked over the Valley of of Megiddo. And you can see how this place is actually big enough to host the armies of the world. The Antichrist will be leading these armies. All of the rulers of the world will be with them. All right? He's going to gather them in this spot, possibly anticipating the fact that Jesus is going to return to the earth. Trust me, the Antichrist, he knows the word of God. He knows about the seven-year period. And then he finds out, and we find out, that's exactly what happens. After a seven-year tribulation period, Jesus shows up. And listen, it's not the rapture this time. This is what the Bible calls the second coming. And this is going to be quite a sight. This is going to be something like the world has never seen before. Revelations chapter 19 sets the scene. The Antichrist and the armies and rulers from all over the world gather to make war against Jesus. In verse 11 it says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in his righteousness he judges and he makes wars. And his eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has the name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, that's us folks, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule 
them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I wish y'all would get excited about that. I love that. Listen, folks, I want you to know something. Jesus is coming back. And he won't be coming back as a baby in a manger. He's coming back on a white horse. And his eyes are going to be like a flame of fire. And he's going to be wearing crowns all over his head. And at this time, we're coming back with him. And the Bible says that we're going to be dressed in white linen. And we're going to be riding white horses. All right? Some of you are thinking, I don't even know how to ride a horse. You will now. And we are going to kick some tail. All right? Revelations 19 tells us that the Antichrist and his little evil sidekick, the false prophet, will be captured and they will be thrown into hell for a thousand years. The armies of the earth and all their rulers will be completely slaughtered. Isaiah 34 tells us that the land will be soaked with blood 200 miles long, deep enough to touch the bridles of the horses. It will be a war like this world has never seen before. And when it's over, Christ and his army will have won. And he will set up a temporary kingdom here on this earth where he will rule and reign for a thousand years. Now, again, you need to understand that there is a ton of stuff found in the Bible, primarily in Revelation, that I'm just, I'm leaving out for the sake of time. But I do want to take a, just a brief moment and talk about this next period of time called the, the millennium period. What, is, what will the millennium look like? Revelations 24 describes it this way. Then I, then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Zechariah 14 tells us that when Christ comes back with his army, he will arrive on the Mount of Olives. It's a place right next to the city of Jerusalem. It's the exact same spot where he left us in Acts chapter 1. When he comes back, the Bible says an earthquake will occur at that very same spot. Scientists over the years have discovered that a natural fault line runs right through that place. And then several things will take place. Christ will rule and reign here on the earth for a thousand years. Old Testament believers will be resurrected. Abraham will be waiting for this moment, the Bible tells us. And they will join us in the millennium. Those who have lost their lives for the sake of Christ during the tribulation will be resurrected and they will join us as well. The millennium will be a time of peace. There will be tremendous joy. There will be no death. There'll be, we'll have full knowledge. In other words, all of the things that we're wondering about and disagreeing, debating about, we'll have full knowledge at that moment. The curse of sin will be gone. Sickness will be removed. There'll be no more racism. There'll be no more oppression. Listen, it's not going to be a final heaven. Okay, that's going to come after the thousand years. We're going to talk about that next week. But it's going to be heaven on earth. And as I said before, there are going to be people who will become believers and they will survive the tribulation and they will live with us during the millennium. They will not have heavenly bodies like us. They'll have earthly bodies. And those earthly bodies will also be able to have children. Children will be born during the millennium. And after this thousand years is over, the Bible tells us that Satan will be released from hell one more time. And he is going to do his best job to tempt a lot of these earthly people that live amongst us during this millennium time. And believe it or not, many of them are going to follow him. 
which leads us all to the great white throne judgment, where every person, every person from the beginning of time that has ever lived will be judged. This judgment is going to have nothing to do with works. This is going to be a judgment that simply answers one question. What have you done with Jesus Christ? Did you accept his free gift of salvation or did you, or did you deny that he was the savior of the world and you, did you reject his plan for forgiveness and salvation for your life? Revelations 20, verse 11 through 15 describes the scene. There will be a judgment before a great white throne. A book will be open, the book of life. Every person will come before that throne one by one. Those that have accepted God's gifts for salvation through Jesus Christ, they will enter what the Bible describes, they will enter a new heaven. What about those who reject Christ as their Savior in this lifetime? Revelations 20, 15 says, And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into a lake of fire. Now here's a question some of you may be asking this morning. Would God actually send people who have rejected Jesus into a place called hell for all eternity? And the answer, according to Scripture, is yes. And I know that seems amazingly cruel. But can you see? I mean, from the moment that we started this series, from the moment of the Garden of Eden, all through the entire book, all the way up till the last moment, can you see how many opportunities God gives us to receive salvation? His grace continues to run through the entire book all the way up to the very the last days. Now, you can also see why it's so important for us to, to not only dedicate our lives to him, here, to him here on this earth, to live for him as followers, but to tell as many people as we know, as many people that will listen about Jesus and about how he offers salvation to anyone that accept, would accept him to be their savior. Listen, it is so crucial. It's why Westridge Church exists. So with all of that said, let me answer one final question. How can I prepare myself for the last days? How can you prepare yourself for the last days? First thing, live your life with the end in mind. If you are a true Christian and the Bible says that all of our works are going to be judged and shown for what they are worth, then you're going to want your life and your works to count when you stand before God. Live your life for the glory of God. Live your life for, the, for that moment in heaven. Listen, this world is so full of people who call themselves Christians who can't think beyond this life. They're so trapped in worrying about tomorrow. How am I going to make it? What am I going to do? Then there's others that are, that are all about getting ahead in this life, making a name for themselves in this life, climbing a ladder of success in this life. And yet the Bible says that all of that stuff will be judged and will be thrown away. Only what we do for Christ in this life is going to last for eternity. If God has set up a system in heaven where those who have dedicated their lives to him on this earth and to actually, actually possibly rule and reign with him in heaven, wouldn't that sound appealing to you at this very moment? So live with the end in mind. If you're a follower of Jesus, listen, you need to understand, this is not our final home. The Bible actually says that we are strangers, we are aliens in this world. Then when it comes to thinking about last days and end times, second thing, don't worry, don't live in fear, and don't overreact. If you are a Christian, Jesus said, when you start seeing all these signs and prophecies coming together, look up. In other words, prepare yourselves, get ready. What does that mean? Should I go out and should I start stocking up on water? Should I buy every battery that I can find? Should I go start stockpiling food? Should I build a shelter to hide in? 
Should I go out and buy a generator? Should I, should I get all my money out of the bank and bury it somewhere safe? Only if you plan on being here during the tribulation. Or during the rap- or if, if, you're, if you plan on being here after the rapture takes place, that's probably a good idea. Should I spend all my time watching cable news and, and living in fear that all of these prophecies are coming true? I mean, should I actually try to stop them? Should I live in fear that there's a group of, called ISIS that's, that's coming together to take over Iraq and Syria? Well, listen, did you know that the book of Jeremiah talks about Assyria coming back together in end times? I mean, quite possibly, we're, we're, watching, we're watching prophecy unfold right in front of our eyes. If we are truly living in last days, here's what we got to do. We need to be wise, but we need to be bold. We need to confidently stand for truth. We need to defend our rights to freely share the gospel. But we don't need to live in fear. We have the Holy Spirit in our corner, and we are already on the winning side. But Jesus says that we need to be ready. And if you are truly a follower of Jesus, then here's how you get ready. Here's what you do. You do your part in making sure others are ready. You spend your life telling others about Jesus and his gift of salvation that he offers to all who will believe. Some of you may be wondering, why is this church, why is Westridge Church so into planting new churches? It's very simple. Because new churches are proven to be the most effective means for reaching the gospel, reaching people with the gospel. We have church plants all over the city of Atlanta. One of our church plant teams are here today. Life, Life Point Church from Al, uh, Albertville, Al, Albertville, Alabama. Matt Brooks and a bunch of his elders are here with us this morning. They started, I don't know how many, six, seven, eight years ago with Celebrate Recovery as their model. And God has allowed them to reach thousands of people for Christ. It's unbelievable. One of our church plants up here in Ackworth, Freedom Church. The, in the past year alone, they saw over 1,100 people put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Some of you are, are concerned about the moral decline in our country right now. Listen, I am too. What are we doing about that, Brian? What are you doing about that? Well, in 2011, we started an organization called Launch. We have an organization that is helping to plant churches through other networks and other churches and other denominations in, in tough places, in dark places like San Francisco and Boston and Baltimore and Phoenix and Los Angeles, downtown Atlanta. You say, why? Listen, politics are important. But it's not the answer to the problems of our nation. My job as a pastor is not to get people out to vote for a certain political party. My job as a pastor, according to Scripture, is to faithfully preach the Bible, make disciples, and to point people to becoming followers of Jesus. Digging wells in Africa is very important. We are doing that. Feeding the homeless is very important. We're engaged in that. But we're only living out half the gospel if we're not leading these same people to Jesus Christ. Listen, Jesus is the only hope that this nation and this world actually has. And the church has been put on this earth to be his messengers of hope. It is on us. And some of you are thinking, man, that's an awfully big task. Listen, we have the Holy Spirit of God who Jesus said we would be better off with than if he were standing here himself. We have the Holy Spirit of God to help us pull all this off. Here's my dream. My dream is that Westridge Church will be part of planting 10,000 new churches all over the world, whether it's in my lifetime or not. Some of you have heard me talking over the last year or so about, about all of our small groups being on mission together. I want to challenge every small group in this church to have a mission. 
to not only be about love, grow, and serve, but also to be about share, to have a mission that is written down, one that you can verbally communicate. And I'm asking you, all of you small group leaders, to have a mission that is centered around the gospel. As a group, we are, we are on a mission to reach so-and-so. Community's great. Bible study's awesome. Coming together for a meal is really good if the meal's good. All right, but I'm asking you to turn yourself outward. Turn yourself outward. And finally, every family, every person in this church, we need to be on mission to invest ourselves in the lives of other people, to share the message of salvation with them. In your cul-de-sac, the kids sitting around you at the desks around you in class, in your neighborhood, on the ball field with the people that, that your kids play baseball with or football or whatever that looks like, you sitting next to you in the stands in our community. We came up with an acronym last year called BLESS just to give you a very simple tool so that you can be able to live that out. Begin with prayer. Listen to them. Earn the right to listen to them. Sit down and eat with them. Have fellowship with them to where they feel comfortable. Then you start serving them. And then earn the right to be able to share your story of how God has changed your life to the place where you can hopefully lead them to Christ. We have not been left here on this earth to store up riches for ourselves, to make a name for ourselves, to build our own little kingdom, to see how many degrees we can accumulate. We have been left on this earth to be missionaries, to share the good news of Jesus Christ with everyone that we know, everyone that God puts into our way. And then finally, if you are here and you have never received Christ, don't wait. This is your moment. I have given my life, and I will continue to give my life to reaching the people of Northwest Atlanta. I want to see every adult, every child, every student have an opportunity in Northwest Atlanta to come to Christ. And we have already seen thousands of people already make that decision. But we are not done. We have so much to do. And if you are here this morning and you have never Receive Jesus Christ to be your Savior. I want you to know it is absolutely no accident that you are here. God wanted you to be here. The Holy Spirit drew you to this place this morning. Why? Because one more time, he wanted to give you an opportunity to receive his free gift of salvation. He wanted you to be sure that when that rapture happens, when that archangel yells, when those trumpets sound, you don't even have to wonder about whether you're going to be caught up. You know you're flying you know you're going up. Whether you face none of the tribulation, part of it, all it doesn't matter. Jesus Christ is your anchor. You are safe and secure. Jesus is your Savior. God's your Father. And you've been brought to this place this morning on purpose so that God could extend his grace once again to you to offer you Jesus maybe one more time maybe for the last time. I want us to bow our heads for a moment.